Heavenly Father, Father, your word says that in the heavenly realm, you are constantly met with the sound of praise, holy, 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 from creatures that you have designed and made to minister at your throne and to uphold your glory and and minister to you in that way, Father. How important is it that your creation announce your glory to you and praise you for it? And if, Father, that is the way it will be in, in your presence, Father, all the more is that not the way it should be for us who are down in this world, trapped in sin, surrounded by it, Father. How much more then should we not acknowledge how holy you are in contrast to what we see around us? How perfect you are, Father. How powerful and awesome. How wise and just. Your your word makes clear, Father, that you made all things by the power of your word. What kind of God has the power to make a universe we can't even see the end of? And that is the God, Father, who, according to your word, stepped into his creation, became like us in all ways except sin so that he may die in our place. Truly, what kind of God is that? It's a God that has made clear to us the magnitude of his grace and mercy and love in the face of his Son, Christ, who, though he loved him from before the foundations of the world for all eternity, from before time, nonetheless, he was crushed for our iniquities. Our sin lay on him. And Father, we thank you so much for that gift that we will celebrate soon in remembrance of that day. But even now, Father, we have the blessing of it in our lives by faith, and we thank you for it. And by the knowledge of you through the Spirit, we have the opportunity to sit here tonight and to look at your word and understand the deep truths of Scripture that you have hidden and revealed to us now. And we thank you, Father, for that. But as we learn... As we understand these things, Father, to whom much is given, much is required. We have been set in a place and in a time where these things must be known because we are in a world that is coming to its end. We ask, Father, then that what we learn tonight would put us in a way and in a place and in a mindset of service to you for the days that remain. We pray this in the name of Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Friends, I ask the question again, why did Jesus go to the cross? That is, why did Israel reject him? Why did the religious leaders turn against him? That's the question that we've been studying in this part of Matthew's Gospel. And with Easter right around the corner, there's probably no better subject than this one right now, in light of the season we're in, right? But as simple as those questions sound, why did Jesus have to die? Why did he go to the cross? Why did Israel reject him? As simple as those questions are, I will tell you that I think many Christians would struggle to answer them out of Scripture. Obviously, Christians would know to say things like, well, this popularity threatened the Jewish leaders of the day. They had to conspire against him. They manipulated the crowds. They manipulated Pontius Pilate. They brought Jesus to the cross. And, of course, theologically, we'd say, well, because he needed to pay the price for our sin. Yes, yes, all of that is true. But the answer we're seeking for out of the text, the one that Matthew wants us to understand more than anything else, is a much deeper answer than that. Because from our standpoint, as we read the story today, with hindsight, we can't imagine why you would reject Jesus. That's what Matthew wants us to understand. He wants us to understand in his narrative the reasoning behind the events that we all now know so well. And in chapters 11 and in 12, which is obviously where we're going soon, Matthew walks us through what are basically the two reasons 
why Jesus was rejected. Last week we studied one of those causes, and I labeled it the hard hearts of Israel, the hard hearts of the people. That in Jesus' day, the Jewish culture, when its system of rules and, and ritual and so on, it had hardened the hearts of the Jewish people in such a way that they now preferred Pharisaic Judaism over what this nobody from Nazareth was offering. Their investment in that system that they had been given uh, caused them to uh, have hard hearts and to be resistant to the truth that Jesus presented to them. So when he came preaching the gospel, the people were unwilling to trade what they had for what Jesus was offering them. And that's the issue of repentance again, remember? This is something we've talked about now for a couple of weeks. That if you don't repent of what is false, you cannot receive what is true. Not when those two things stand diametrically opposed. Not when they're contradictory. You have to choose one or the other. Which is why Jesus condemned that generation of Israel, those cities, as we saw last week. Look back in what we looked at last week in verse 20. You see where he gives you exactly what they did wrong in verse 20? He says, Matthew says, Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done. Why? Because they did not repent. They would not let go of what they had come to hold true and dear so that they could embrace what he offered. The issue was repentance, an unwillingness to turn from rebellion and embrace the truth. And I explained last week that the repentance he's talking about here is not feeling sorry. It's not a regret over a mistake or sin or whatever. It's a change in, a change in perspective, a change of heart. It is a fundamental shift in thinking that puts you on a new spiritual course. That's what we mean when we say repentance. And what Jesus was doing was condemning Israel at this moment in chapter 11 because they would not repent in that way despite having seen so many miracles. So, Jesus was rejected by Israel because Israel would not repent. But if you think about it just for a little more, you ask yourself, well... That doesn't really answer the question. If, if I ask you, why did Jesus go to the cross, and you say, oh, it's because Israel didn't repent, what am I going to ask you next? Why didn't they repent? You see, we've still got to get to the nut of that. Why didn't they repent, especially in light of everything they saw and heard? Why would somebody stay resistant to the truth? In fact, Jesus already told them, less godly cultures, less informed cultures like Sodom, they would have repented. All right, so why not Israel? In fact, what leads some of us to repent and not others in general? You know, really, that's a good question, too. Forget Israel for a minute. How come you repented and that ungodly man or woman that lives down the street from you has never repented? I bet they've heard the gospel. I bet there's hardly anyone left in the United States at this point who hasn't at least at some point bumped into somebody who told them about Jesus. I'm sure there are probably a few. But my point is, why are people resistant at all? to this offer of salvation, the free gift, the opportunity to spend eternity with Christ just because of faith. Isn't that an interesting question? Paul explains the source of our repentance this way. In 2 Corinthians 7, 9, he says, speaking to the church in Corinth, he says, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. All right, so Paul rejoiced in the fact that that church experienced repentance. And then he said this, he said, for you were made sorrowful according to the will of God so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. 
but the sorrow of the world produces death. You've probably heard that passage, right? I love that passage because Paul distinguishes between two experiences that we seem at times to think are the same thing, but in reality are very different things. That is the two kinds of sorrow that you can know as a human being. One of those kinds of sorrow is the way the world experiences their sin. And another way of describing the world's sorrow in the face of sin is simply regret at the consequences. Regret at the consequences. You know, everyone has sin, and everyone experiences some measure of consequences as a result of their sin. Some people go to jail. Some people get in trouble with their spouse. Some people just hurt themselves. But everyone has consequence for sin at some level. And when you experience the consequence for your sin, you tend to not be happy about it. That's sorrow. But that's a worldly sorrow. Because everyone in the world knows it. Everyone in the world experiences it. But Paul says there is another kind of sorrow that only comes from God. It's called godly sorrow, if you want to call it that. And what it does in our hearts is it leads us to this repentance moment that we've been talking about. A sorrow that leads us to the truth, a willingness to drop what we held to be true and embrace what is now really true. That kind of repentance is one that God does in our heart, and Paul says it leads to salvation. So there's the kind of sorrow that comes naturally in the world, and a kind of sorrow that comes only by the will of God in the life of a person. Now last week you remember when I was teaching a little on what Jesus was saying to this crowd, I told you that Israel's rejection of Christ was according to a plan that God had for his son. Remember that the Bible teaches that God intended that Israel's rejection of Jesus take place. And he intended it because that's how he put his son on a cross. And he had to put his son on a cross because that's how he was going to pay for your sin. And it couldn't have gone any other way. You understand, right? It could not have gone any other way. And he foretold that in Isaiah 53, which will be part of what we study on Easter in here. It says, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of all of us to fall on him. Now, you notice that's written in the past tense. The Lord has caused... The prophet wrote this hundreds of years before it happened, but he wrote it as if it had already happened, because from God's point of view, it had. It was ordained to happen. It wasn't not going to happen. That's a double negative, but you know what I mean. The Father would cause, or did cause in the past tense, our iniquity to fall on Jesus, Isaiah foretold. And because the Lord wrote this through Isaiah in advance of it happening, We know the Father planned for it to happen. And he didn't just plan for Jesus to die any old way. Isaiah says specifically he was pierced. This is a prophecy of the crucifixion itself. Before, by the way, before crucifixion was ever being used. That means that the Father not only ordained the outcome, he ordained the means to that outcome. And if you ordain the means to that outcome, friends, it is unavoidable that we conclude he ordained that Israel reject him so that his son would then be put on a Roman cross and die in the way that he did. So that leads us to this question. Why did Israel reject Jesus? And the answer ultimately and inevitably leads us to this answer. God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty 
put Jesus on the cross, and therefore God's sovereignty led Israel to reject their Messiah. And that is exactly where Jesus goes next in the text, verse 25, where we pick up tonight. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Now, I want you to notice at the beginning of verse 25, Matthew writes, at that time... Jesus spoke these words. What he's saying to you and I is that immediately after Jesus spoke to the crowd and condemned them for their failure to repent, that's what we studied last week, in that same moment, he then turns and enters into what is essentially a moment of prayer or of praise prayer, speaking to the Father and says the words we just wrote. Now, I want you to consider that shift for a moment because that's a pretty abrupt shift. Uh, you know, it's, it's a pretty stunning movement of, of Christ from a condemn, moment of condemnation to a moment of praising God. One moment, judgment. The next moment, he is praising. Now, remember last week I told you something that I, I could see. Now, you guys, you're looking at me, obviously. I'm looking at you. And it's fun to be up here in some respects because I get to see the reaction in your faces when I say crazy things. And, and I know when I'm saying a crazy thing because I see the reaction. And last week you thought I said a crazy thing, some of you. Because last week I told you that when you're looking at Scripture, you have to understand Scripture from God's point of view. But you have to read Scripture from man's point of view. And some of you looked at me, you gave me that look like your dog does when you whistle. You know, like that. But that's what you just saw Jesus do. In other words, Jesus understood that he had to view his present circumstances from those two perspectives simultaneously. And here's what I mean. When Jesus looked at his circumstances from a human point of view, as if we would read the text this way, from a human point of view, what did he see? Well, he saw the Galileans around him in these three cities he mentioned. He knew they all had all the proof they needed to know that he was the Messiah. He had shown them all these miracles. They had seen the miracles. They had heard his teaching. In fact, they had had more than enough proof, having seen almost all his miracles, he said, most of his miracles. We're done in these three cities. And yet, as he looks at the reaction, he does not see repentance at all. He sees skepticism. He sees selfish interests. He sees duplicity. He sees all these things, but he doesn't see repentance. That unwillingness to repent was the result of, of things like pride and spiritual blindness and apathy and self-centeredness. And when he looks at that, this is from a human point of view. By the way, if you'd been there with Jesus, that's how you would have seen the moment too. And in that moment, he justly, he justly condemns that response to what he gave them. And there's no two ways about it, right? That's what it means when you read the text from a human perspective. What it means is this. You understand the circumstances from a basic cause and effect outcome. And what do we have here? Well, Jesus did certain things, and the Galileans responded in certain ways, cause and effect. And then in return for their response, Jesus did what he did in condemning them, cause and effect. And their response can clearly be understood from that point of view, and Jesus' response can clearly be in, uh, understood from his point of view. There's no mystery to that. We get it. Case closed. 
But at the same time, we know there's another actor here. There's another actor involved in this story. He's not necessarily there in any physical sense. You don't hear him mentioned at this moment, but we know he's there. We know that God the Father in heaven is present, and we know that his will is being considered, being being enacted on in that moment. And that's what I mean when I say, though you read it from a human perspective, you have to understand it from God's perspective. So when I turn this over and I look at it from God's perspective now, and I try to understand, well, what else is going on in this moment? Well, then I come to the sovereignty of God. In this case, Jesus understood the sovereignty of his father, obviously. He knew he was going to the cross. He knew that was the plan. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians that God authored the plan of redemption before the foundations of the world. Before the creation existed, the Father and the Son had some kind of little conference. We don't know how this works, right? The Trinity. They decided to make a creation that would then require that Jesus go into it and die for it. And they made the plan before it happened. You know, when you think about what Christ did for you on the cross, don't forget to go back to the beginning. Think about what it meant that he was willing to build the creation knowing you'd have to die for it. It's not like Adam did something that took God by surprise and he's like, oh boy, I've got to go deal with this now. No, that was in the plan. People will say, well, he didn't make Adam eat the fruit. No, he didn't, but he put a tree there with fruit in it and then he said, don't eat it. He could have made it 100 feet tall. Adam could never have reached it, but he didn't. The point was to die for his creation when the time came. We know that. We know Scripture tells us that. So when you look at the moment from that point of view, from God's point of view, you look at the scene from God's point of view, what do you see? Well, you see a crowd failing to repent because it's part of the Father's plan. And if you want to say it another way, had the Father willed for the people of Israel to receive Christ, he would have done so. Had he willed for his people to have repentance unto salvation, they would have. But as it was, the crowd remained unrepentant, which tells us that the sovereignty of God was at work in that moment to allow them to remain ignorant. And Jesus understood that. And because he understood that, he turns, you see, in the text in verse 25, and he praises the Father for leaving the crowd unrepentant, even though he knew that meant he would go to the cross as a result. Could we have done that? I mean... I know we're not God, so that takes us and puts us in a whole different realm already. But just intellectually, can you imagine that? Can you imagine honestly, heartfully praising God for what he's doing in, your, in the moment when you know that what he's doing is going to put you on a cross? I don't know that we would have had, I don't know that I would have had the ability to say, thank you, Father, for that. Jesus just did. Notice in verse 25, he says, I praise you, Father, for hiding these things from the wise and the intelligent. First, what are the things that are hiding, being hidden here? What are, the, what are the things? Well, they are the same things mentioned back in verse 14, referencing John the Baptist and his call to Israel that they would repent. They are the same things that Jesus has been referring to when he condemned the cities. That is, it is a knowledge that Jesus is Lord and a desire to repent and receive the gospel that he was offering. It's that thing, if you will. This whole conversation that Jesus is having. The Lord revealed that truth to some hearts in Israel, yes, but to most, Jesus said he was hiding that information. In particular, the Lord, Jesus says, didn't reveal it 
to wise and intelligent. And that refers to the religious leaders of that day. To those within Israel who were the learned. We're talking here about men like the Pharisees. They were the best trained. They were the ones who were most knowledgeable of Scripture. They were the best qualified to spot the Messiah when he came. They would have known that Jesus was the guy, but they missed him. And Jesus is praising the Father for hiding that truth from them. Now, I want to clarify something in this because at this point, our hearts start to get a little you know, worried because we're not sure what this is saying to us about God. But when the Bible says he's hiding something, hiding a truth here, you need to understand what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying that the Father prevented the religious leaders from knowing a truth that they otherwise would have discovered had God the Father not prevented it. That's not what he's saying. Because the Father doesn't even need to do that. If you notice in the second half of the verse, what does it say? How did the infants, so-called infants, gain the knowledge that they gained? How did they receive it? Because it says the Father revealed it to them. In other words, we need to turn the question around. God did not prevent anyone from knowing the truth. He simply left them in their ignorance by not revealing the truth to them. Do you understand that? And that may seem like a very small semantic kind of difference, but it's a big difference. Because for some, the idea that God is stopping someone from believing doesn't sound consistent with the heart of God. Well, what they need to understand is they're half right and half wrong. They're wrong to think God is pushing someone away from him. No, that's not the case at all. God doesn't have to push anyone away from him. No one finds him on their own. But it is true to say that God did not break through and reveal himself to those who were wise and intelligent in the day that these events happened. That's what Jesus is saying. When the Bible says God hides something, what it means is God didn't reveal it. In fact, unless and until the Lord reveals spiritual truth to anyone, we will never find it. Not on our own. Because spiritual truth lies outside our abilities to find it. It's outside our reach. Human beings fundamentally gain knowledge in one way. We gain it by experience. Human beings understand what they know because of what their senses can take in and because of how their intellect processes what they've taken in. That's how everyone learns anything. And somebody learns it and they write it down and you learn it from them, but that just changed the experience. They learned it through some kind of experience maybe out in the woods. They wrote down what they learned. You learned it through an experience of reading what they wrote, but it's the same thing in the end. Two experiences. People have to experience things, bring it in, and learn it. And process it. That's how human beings learn anything, right? How do you learn anything about God? Well, here's the problem. The spiritual realm lies outside your experience. You have no access to it. You can't even detect it, much less understand it. It's like you're a fish in a fishbowl. You might understand your fishbowl pretty well, but you have no concept of what's outside that fishbowl. And you'll never know. In fact, the only way to know what's outside that fishbowl is to leave the fishbowl, which kills you. And that's a, an intentional comparison, because the only way you're going to find out about the spiritual world is after you die. Right? This side of it, you have no concept, no way or, or possibility to reach into it and understand anything of it. The only way you'd ever know what's in the spiritual realm is if something in that realm comes to you and reveals truth to you about itself. So God doesn't have to hide spiritual truth by preventing people from finding it. He just has to merely do nothing. And we remain ignorant by default. Which is why this is just so remarkable. 
that the God who made everything condescended to reveal so much of himself to that creation in his word. Simply put, no human being can ever know anything about God or the spiritual realm unless God chooses to reveal it. So unless he intervenes into our blissful ignorance and grants us that divine insight, we will remain forever ignorant. That is the natural state of all humanity and always has been. So what Jesus praises the Father for here is choosing to reveal himself to certain individuals of that day and not to others. And in that way, some in Israel did accept Jesus as their Messiah and not all. Now, who did accept him? Well, we know that the ones who are following him now, the disciples, these are the ones Jesus is referring to in verse 25 when he says, you chose to reveal yourself to infants. Now, you know, he's using that term, uh, it's euphemistic, right? He's not talking about literally only babies knew who Jesus was. He's talking to about adults, but these infants are people who are spiritual infants. The disciples, remember we talked about these guys a few chapters back? I told you at that time, they're not exactly an A-list of, of religious scholars, right? Think about who we know these guys are. We're talking here about working class boys from poor families in backwater areas of the country with no religious training, no religious experience, virtually no interest in the matter whatsoever. One of them was a tax collector and therefore a pariah. This is the last group of people that you would ever expect God would select if he was about to reveal the most important thing in all human history. But that's who he chose. Infants, Jesus said. They are infants, especially in comparison to the mature religious leaders of that day. They're like children in the fact that they have so little knowledge, so little experience. But you know what? That's what made them perfect. They were actually perfect for the job because by their weakness in those areas, they invalidated the so-called strength and wisdom of those other guys. Paul says it this way. You know this passage. I'm sure many of you do from 1 Corinthians. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians one twenty-one. He says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for a sign and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jew and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren. Not many of you are wise, according to the flesh. Not many mighty. Not many are noble, Paul would say to you. But God has chosen the foolish things, me too, the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame those who are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before God. Now I want you to notice in that passage, I read the whole passage because I want you to get a full sense of what Paul's saying. It's not just one isolated verse here. This is the thrust of his entire argument in that part of the book. Of 1 Corinthians. He's saying, no one comes to God by their own wisdom. That is to say, the, the world's knowledge of, of God, its wisdom, leads them away from Christ, not toward Him. And so, to mock all of that, quote, wisdom, that's truly just foolishness, 
God has designed his message of salvation in such a way that it is utter foolishness to the ear of the average person. I want you to think about this for a minute. We're getting close to Easter. Do you know what Easter sounds like to the rest of the world? Absolute nonsense. Your solution to heaven, you know, the Christian's solution, our, you know, Buddha's got its solution, Muhammad had their solution, there's solutions from every other Eastern and Western religion you can name. What's ours? What are we selling? Well, get this. Your solution to heaven is that a convicted criminal died at a Roman cross 2,000 years ago. That's your solution to heaven. Now, you and I think about that as, oh, yeah, I know, that's, that's the gospel. But you gotta, if you could take yourself out of your Christian culture for just a second and think about it objectively, that is an utterly crazy thing. I mean, it makes a lot more sense for someone to say, you've got to say so many Hail Marys and do so much of this and that, and you can go to heaven. That, that kind of makes sense in a way, right? Like I'm doing something that God likes. But to simply say, no, you just have to believe that a convicted criminal who was executed 2,000 years ago is your solution to getting into heaven? That's like, that, that, act, that sounds like, you know, you might as well teach me to believe in Bigfoot or the Tooth Fairy at that point because it just doesn't make any sense. Now, if you take time to explain the theology of it, yeah, eventually I can make sense of it, yes, but what I'm trying to point out to you is that that, that sense that you're thinking about, that ability to rationalize it, that is God's revelation to you. That's not human intellect. What the human brain does with that message is say to itself, that's good for you, but that's not what I believe in. That's kind of weird. I don't believe in that. Oh, I've heard that story a million times. You know, all the reasons you hear when you tell people about Jesus. Paul says, God created the message of his son on a cross and uses that message to save people because he wanted it to mock the so-called wisdom of a world that thinks they can find God in their own strength. Isn't that an amazing thing? When you think about what God did there... He picked something intentionally that would mock the world. Which is why Paul says he is preaching Christ, he called it, Christ crucified. And he says it's a stumbling block to Jews and it's foolishness to Gentiles. He designed this message in such a way that it will not appeal to humanity's intellect. Never. There's no one who's ever come to believe in Christ in their own intellect. Period. That's why the Bible says they have to be born again. Right? That's why the Bible says you have to believe in your heart. You ever notice that? It doesn't say believe with your brain. But God knows this is the thinking organ. He made it. You know, He knows this is where the thinking goes on. Why does he say believe in your heart? It's not just poetry. He's trying to make a point. I have to change your spirit. That's the heart becomes a euphemism for the spirit. I have to change your spirit. You have to have a new spirit. I have to birth you again. You can't get there from here. You get there from here. So as someone believes in the gospel, that person's conversion must be understood by us as a work of God, a supernatural moment, God granting the repentance that leads to salvation. Or as Paul calls it in the passage I just read, the power and wisdom of God on display. So history is going to testify, when it's all said and done, that the foolishness of God in the message of Christ was powerful to save, while the so-called wisdom of men never led anyone to finding God. That's going to be the testimony of history. That's God's plan to shame the world, the so-called wise of the world. 
Paul says God went even a step further, though. When he moves the message into the hearts of people, he actually finds people that are foolish in their own world. They're, they're weak. They are people who the world despises. God is selecting those people, proportionally more of them than he would, say, the rich and famous, the wise and powerful, to further make the point that your power and strength are not a means to finding God. And then he turns to the church and he says, consider your own calling, brother. I love the way that Paul does that, you know? He doesn't pull any punches. You know, that's interesting. If you look around this room right now, I don't know all of you that well, but even the ones I do know in this room, yeah, you're not much. I mean, you're okay. You're lying, you know. I like you. But, I mean, I don't think there's anybody in here that runs the world. I don't think there's a billionaire in here. If there is, could I see you afterward, please? But I, I don't think there's a billionaire in here, right? We, we are not, by the world standards, you know, you guys aren't spending your summer on a yacht somewhere off in the med somewhere, right? I mean, this is not the, the crowd, for the most part, that has that kind of rich and famous lifestyle. Look at where you are. Do you know what the rich and famous are saying right now? That we're here because we need a crutch. You ever heard that phrase, right? It's to pacify the unwashed masses. Oh, you know, it's this condescending attitude that says, we in our miserable little everyday lives need God because we're so desperate for anything to make our lives happy and fulfilled, while they feel very fulfilled on the Riviera with their champagne and their jet at the, you know. But friends, that only lasts this long. I'm not jealous of them. I'm not, it doesn't matter what they have to me. What I'm saying to you is that the proportional number of people out of that world that God is reaching in and saving is small because of his purpose in showing the world that it is not wisdom, power, strength, and wealth that leads you to God. So he is withholding revelation to some degree from the powerful and famous so that in eternity, those unwashed masses will be praising him all the more for his riches in mercy. This is God's prerogative. This is what it means to be God. So when we answer the question, why did Israel reject Messiah? We need to read the text from man's perspective, and we need to understand it from God's perspective. Israel had hard hearts, yes. They refused to repent, yes. They would not embrace their Messiah, and as a result, because of their investment in Pharisaic Judaism, they missed him, yes. And they were condemned for it, absolutely. Meanwhile, we also know that the Father had purposed to reveal himself only to a few of them, to the spiritual infants, so that they could start a new worldwide movement we call the church. And in the meantime, he did not reveal himself to the masses, to the wise, and to the powerful. Just as Paul explains in Romans 11, verse 7, he says, What then? Well, what Israel was seeking, it is not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. Do you know where that quote comes from that Paul quoted there? That comes from Deuteronomy. That takes you back to Moses. Moses told the people of God what to expect. That's how far back the plan goes in their existence. Jesus knew this plan, and when he stood there in front of the crowd and he turned to them, he knew what they were going to say before they said it. And as they said it, he turns to the Father and praises him for his wisdom in that plan. That's why back in verse 15, if you remember earlier in this book, in verse 15 of chapter 11, when Jesus first uses that phrase, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Remember I told you that's going to come up a lot in this book, but that's the first time he uses it. And the reason he starts using that phrase here and now 
is because Jesus is acknowledging here and now that not everybody in this crowd is being granted by the Father the revelation of the truth of who I am. But some of you are. And he who has an ear to hear right now, let him hear. Because I'm talking only to you right now because I know the rest of you aren't listening. Now, you might imagine this. You might say, well, Steve, but didn't Jesus reveal the truth to Israel just by virtue of the fact that he was there? He was talking to them? Isn't Jesus God? Isn't that what we mean when we say God reveals himself? He's there saying, I'm Jesus, I'm the Messiah. Isn't that him revealing himself? Well, yes, in a sense. I mean, the crowd certainly saw him. They heard him. They saw the miracles. But remember what I said a minute ago? That's all still just human experience. It's human experience, right? Sights, sounds, things they're processing with their brain. And those experiences, friends, even great signs and wonders, even miracles performed by the Messiah himself, they are still not a substitute for spiritual insight. They are still just experiences. Spiritual insight only comes from revelation by God, and that's true whether you're hearing someone tell you a story about Jesus, or whether you're reading about Jesus in the Bible, or whether you're standing before him and he's doing a miracle. It's all still in the human domain, even if it's God himself or God's word. It requires that there be one other factor present in the moment in order for those experiences to transcend the human's and become spiritual insight. And that extra ingredient, if you want to call it that, is the Spirit of God making clear to you that what you're experiencing is truth from God. That's a chasm that we can't cross, that only God himself can cross. Paul says that this way in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12. He says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, and then he tells you why you have him, so that you may know the things freely given to you by God. And then he says in verse 14, Now an unsaved man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. What Paul just said is, there are things in the spiritual realm that you might want to know, but you cannot understand them unless they are explained to you by the Spirit of God who is in that realm. Such that even if Jesus himself stands before you and says spiritual truth and does spiritual miracles in front of you, your physical state as a natural man, Paul calls us, or an unbeliever, is such that that knowledge just cannot get in. It cannot get in unless the Spirit of God brings it to us in a way that we understand it. That's why Jesus told the disciples that after he left, he would send the helper who would teach us all things. We need that. Otherwise, we have no hope to understand anything. Spiritual truth has to be spiritually appraised. I want you to go to the next verse before we run out of time here, but look where Jesus says the Father and the, and the Son are in agreement in this plan. The last verse I read tonight, verse 26, he says, The plan to selectively reveal spiritual truth to the infants is well-pleasing, in the Father's sight. Now what I'm pointing out there as we run past that verse and go to the next one is simply this. The Father looked down and saw the religiously wise remaining ignorant and saw the spiritually you know, poor infants gaining knowledge and that was well-pleasing to him. The Greek word for well-pleasing means approved. So God approved this plan for the sake of the Son. And Jesus approved it too. Verse 27 Jesus says, not only does the Father know the Son, but only the Son knows the Father. 
What he's speaking about here, of course, is the relationship between the members of the Godhead. Now, this is not something you and I can understand very easily, and I'm not pretending that we will figure this out entirely, but we can understand what he just said here. What he said right here is that only a member of the Godhead can truly know another member of the Godhead. Now, that's not hard to understand, right? How else could that be true? (laughs) How else could it be that anything could know anything about the Godhead except the member of the Godhead itself, right? That's something beyond any comprehension of the creation. So all he said was, the only one who can know the Father is the Son. And for the same reason, the only one who knows the Son is the Father. But the question is, how do we know him? And to that, Jesus says, the Father has given all authority to the Son to be the one to reveal all truth to the creation. That is, it is in the Father's design that the Son is the spokesperson for the Trinity. And the rest of Scripture backs this up. For the sake of time, I won't read the verses, I'll just quote them. But in Hebrews 1.1, we're told that God the Father has spoken through His Son to us. In John 14, Jesus says, after saying, I am the way and the truth and the life, He says that... To Timothy, who says, show us the Father, Jesus says, you asked me to show you the Father? He says, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Paul says in Colossians that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father's nature. So it is to say that Jesus is the only member of the Godhead that you can see or experience or know anything about. Remember how I said humanity has to experience things? Jesus is our opportunity to experience the Godhead. And Jesus says this, In verse 27, he says, The Father has given me all authority to be the one to tell everyone about him and about me and about the Godhead in general, about all spiritual knowledge, all spiritual truth. That is, and this is important, Muhammad did not get that privilege. Buddha did not get that privilege. The Dalai Lama, the Pope, they are not the ones that the Father said, You go tell the world about me. Only the Son of God, only Christ, has the authority to tell the world about the Father because he's the only one who knows him. Do you understand that puts Jesus on a whole different level than those other guys? (laughs) They don't get what Jesus has unless they go to Jesus for it. That's it. And then notice at the end of verse 27, Jesus says, And the choice of revealing that truth lies with the will of the Son. Did you see him say that? He says that only the Son knows the Father and those the Son wills to reveal it. So when I ask you the question again, why did Israel reject Jesus? Well, you start with because they had hard hearts, because they were blinded by a false religion. But when I ask you, well, then why did they remain blind? Why were their hearts hard? Why didn't they soften after seeing so many miracles? Well, then you give me the other answer. Because the Father and the Son purposed to withhold spiritual truth from that generation... And why would they do that to that generation? So that Israel would reject Jesus. So that they would put him on a cross. And why did Jesus have to go on a cross? Well, now you know that answer, right? For you. For me. Now trace that chain all the way back. Do you know why Israel rejected Jesus? For you. That's where you end up on that whole conversation, right? Because, 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 because you. That's what God did. Apart from the grace of God, we would have been just like that generation of Israel, lacking true repentance, ignorant of the truth. 
That's the question you should be asking yourself tonight. When we leave as we do now from tonight, when you think about this whole teaching, the question you ought to think about is not so much why did Israel reject Jesus. You've got that answer. Here's the question you ought to be thinking about. You ought to be thinking, why did God choose to reveal himself to you? Now, I'm not saying you have an answer like, oh, because I did such and such or I deserve such and such. No, we know those answers aren't accurate. That's not why I'm asking the question. I'm not asking it because you can answer it in that sense. What I'm asking you to answer this question is in the sense of, why did he choose to reveal himself to you? For what purpose? For what outcome? What's the mission behind that for God? Right? Why did he want you to know Jesus? Why did he want you to have something that he didn't give to someone else? Apart from the grace of God, you wouldn't have had it. Yet here you are, saved by the grace of God. Why are you here? You know, that's the question that drives me. That is actually the question that drives my own personal ministry every day. I'm not saying I live like I'm a, a monk or something. I'm not saying I'm not you know, struggling with sin like the rest of us. What I am saying, though, is when my mind turns back to ministry and when I think about serving Christ, the question that comes to my mind is, why did he choose to reveal himself to me? He didn't have to, and there's others he doesn't. Why me? And you know where that answer leads you? Because there's something in my life that God wanted to do to glorify himself. And that leads you to questions like, well, am I in the program or not? Am I keeping up or not? Have I used my life for that outcome as much as I should have or not? As you contemplate the answer to that, let it move you to rethink how you're spending your time on earth. Starting with today. Starting with where you go tomorrow. Don't waste any days. You don't know how many you have. And it's not as though you have to worry about the end of your life. It's actually a really good thing for the Christian. It's not a bad moment. It's a good moment. But what comes right after that moment is a little test, the Bible says. It's a reflection by Christ on your life for the purpose of assigning you eternal reward. And that reflection moment will be the opportunity for Christ to say, I wonder what you did with what I gave you. Because I didn't save you just because I said heaven wouldn't be heaven without Steve. What I did was I saved you so that you would glorify me. Take that question with you tonight. Take it with you into the week to come. Think about it in every aspect of your life. And don't ignore the implications of God's grace in your life. He didn't save you for your own sake. He saved you for his glory. So any consideration of the question, why did Israel say no to Jesus, must necessarily lead you to considering, why did God say yes to me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we don't know why you said yes to us, but we're so thankful that you did. And a heart that has come to understand the sovereignty of God, the mysteries of your will, and the grace that we've received is a heart, Father, that is necessarily moved to serving and loving you. Let what we've learned tonight, Father, motivate us all the more to do those two things, to serve you and to love you. And to be a man or woman who looks at his life or her life as an opportunity to glorify you and nothing less. We thank you for the privilege that it is to be counted a child of God by faith in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.